Welcome. You're listening to the podcast where we interview founders innovating at the near frontier, whose companies will give you a glimpse of the future. Near Frontier is brought to you by Cantos, a venture firm that invests in world-positive deep tech startups at Pre-Seed and Seed. To learn more, visit us at cantos.vc. Welcome back to Near Frontier. I'm Ami Kapadia, bioanalyst at Cantos, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Andrew Karima, Cantos's hardware analyst. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing fantastic. It's finally hit 30s in Austin, but the sun is shining bright and the new season of Ozark just dropped. So I'm a happy clam. Ooh, I do not envy that weather. So we're doing something a little different on the show today. Unfortunately, we're not joined by a deep tech founder, but we are still talking about all things near frontier. At the start of the year, Andrew and I spent some time reflecting on deep tech, kind of thinking more about what we saw in 2021 and what we might see in the new year. And we wrote that all up on a blog post, which you can read on the Cantos blog, and I'll link it in the show notes too. But we also thought it'd be fun to dive into some of these trends a little more, more conversationally, and maybe throw out some honorable mentions. So that's what's on the docket for today. To kick it off, Andrew, a question I often get is, what is deep tech? Can you shed some light on that? Yeah. Um, so that is, that's a tough one. There's a bunch of analogies. Um, to me, deep tech is the convergence of science and engineering uh, to tackle humanity's hardest problems. A lot of the innovation that comes from this place is world changing, like semiconductor manufacturing that puts smartphones in the hands of 91% of the global population, a vaccine for a pandemic designed in two days, a private company taking civilians to space, and so much more is going to occur uh, this decade. Deep tech is what we kind of all dreamed of when we watched Star Wars or any other technological fantasies. It's where we shrink the distance between science fiction and science fact. If software is the paint, deep tech is the canvas, and founders are the artists. And through the democratization of knowledge and more access to capital, it's created the perfect conditions for a new generation of pioneers to build in the world of atoms you know, and improve the human experience. I love it. That's the most poetic definition of deep tech I've heard. It seems like everyone has their own definition of what does and does not count as deep tech. But for those interested in diving in, I actually found an interesting list of deep tech startups on Twitter created by Mina Fami. You can find it at trailblazerslist.xyz, and I'll also link that in the show notes. But it's basically just a list of different stages of startups in the deep tech space. He has some pre-seed ones, seed all the way um, to series A and even some IPO'd ones and a couple lists of deep tech firms that invest in these startups. But it's a great place to get started if you want to see what types of companies are uh, coming about in the space. And he's even included some book recs, including one of our favorites at Cantos, Loon Shots by Safi Bakal. So really a great place to start if you are interested. All right, let's get into the predictions. One of the things that we think we'll see, and to be honest, we kind of need to see this soon, is that biomanufacturing just needs to scale up. A brief background, if you're unfamiliar with biomanufacturing, is that it's basically this process of engineering living organisms, usually cells and enzymes, to grow things. It's pretty ubiquitous with synthetic biology production right now. 
probably the easiest example to wrap your head around is cell-based meats where animal cells are isolated, they're stimulated with specific growth factors, hormones, nutrients, and they're grown in bioreactors and then eventually harvested. Other examples of biomanufacturing include producing clean chemicals from a sugar feedstock and engineered enzymes like Solugen is doing, or converting carbon dioxide into different clothing fibers like Ruby Labs and some of the others in the space are doing. But the big problem here for Synbio products like clean fuel and like cell-based meats is that to be competitive price-wise, we really need much bigger bioreactors. Like we're talking 10,000 liter and 100,000 liter capacity. And the current pilot scale right now is only in the tens and hundreds of liters. And those can really only produce a few kilograms of product, which to be honest, is just not going to cut it for an industry that claims to be able to restructure our food supply and even our energy needs. But what's interesting about biomanufacturing compared to some of the other things in deep tech is that it's not an impossible technological undertaking. It's really the technology is not holding it back. What biomanufacturing really needs to see is an influx of capital and space to build out the infrastructure. And so that's why I kind of think that it is possible to see within the next few years, especially as synthetic biology products start coming out of R&D, they start becoming more commercially available, and people just realize that the big thing holding them back is manufacturing. That being said, I will add that from a tech standpoint, biomanufacturing technology is due for a refresh, kind of like a lot of the chemical industry. And so I expect that we will see advancements with things like continuous fermentation or automated processes, different control systems, things along those lines in tandem with the increase in scale. But both of them will be something to watch in the next year. Wow, that's pretty cool, Ami. Um, And going off of manufacturing, the first topic I want to talk about is the U.S. making plans to regain its stronghold in semiconductor manufacturing. Hey, Andrew, before diving deeper into semiconductors, can you explain why the industry is so important? Yeah, Ami. Um, These machines are, I mean, the machines that make semiconductors are sometimes considered alien tech. These chips are built by using extreme ultraviolet lithography machines. You really can't just reverse engineer these machines. I mean, that's the reason why a Dutch company in the Netherlands, ASML, has like a monopoly on how the fabrication process happens. And that fabrication process is so complicated that many have attributed lithography machines to being the most complex invention ever made, with the exception of particle accelerators and when we get to nuclear fusion, but that's for later. Uh, If you dive under the hood, building chips can appear as alien tech and the closest thing to magic we have on this planet. And so the king of all chip makers is TSMC with a whopping 53% of market share. But the problem is they're exclusively based in Taiwan. And from an assortment of issues ranging from natural disasters such as COVID or geopolitical tensions, this leaves the global chip supply chain vulnerable. Um, These past two years have demonstrated how vital it is for more chip manufacturing to be a domestic activity. In the 1990s, I think 37% of the world's semiconductors were built in the U.S., but as of 2020, that has shrunk to 12%. Wow, that's really alarming. I think this whole TSMC lockup has had so many of us stress lately. 
Are there any notable domestic efforts happening to bring this onshore? I would imagine that the government and some of the bigger tech companies are realizing that this really is an issue. Yeah, it is a pressing concern for our current administration. And so the way our current administration is trying to mitigate that issue is by delivering a bill the size of $52 billion to support semiconductor research. So it only makes sense that federal investments propel innovation into space, which also means legacy chip makers are going to throw a lot more money into R&D as well. And ongoing on big tech, Intel's new CEO, Patrick Gelsinger, is looking to make up for his old mistake on declining Apple's proposition in building processors. At the time, they said it was a low margin business and that they had a good thing going on with its duopoly from a combination of high volumes with high margins. Now they plan to surpass Samsung and TSMC by 2025 with a series of massive new chip fabrication plants in the U.S. I believe those plants will be, well, here in the U.S., of course, and Europe and Israel as well. And that will cost about $44 billion. Um, also, TSSMC is establishing a home base in the U.S., Scottsdale, Arizona specifically, and that is projected to be fully operational by 2024. So along with that, we will also see tech giants such as Apple, Tesla, Google, and Amazon making their own application-specific chips. And so the whole point of this is so they can have more control over the integration of both their software and hardware products. Um, I really think we're just beginning to see what innovations take place in this arena. That makes me feel a little bit better. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how AI drug discovery is starting to receive clinical validation. This was a really big year for AI-enabled drug discovery, which, if you're unfamiliar with the term, is basically a fancy way of saying that instead of researchers running hundreds of experiments to pick targets and pick drug candidates, we now use machine learning algorithms in various different ways at various steps in the process to increase the efficiency and also just the quality of drug candidates chosen. With, of course, wet lab experiments still being run in conjunction, we're not forgetting about actually validating the biology that the machine learning algorithms are trying to replicate. Can you explain how adding AI um, adds value to the process of drug discovery? Yeah, it's actually takes, I'll give you some statistics. It takes an average of 12 years and $2.1 billion to develop just one drug, going from the research stage fully through clinical approval. And despite the number of untreatable diseases out there, which we all know is far too high, only 54 drugs are approved on average each year by the FDA. And if you've read any of my writing in the last few months, you've probably seen these numbers before. I know I use them everywhere, but... I don't think I've fully processed how complicated and how costly it is to develop a new drug. It's mind-boggling. And so it's kind of why I'm incredibly bullish on this intersection of biochemistry, molecular biology, with computational tools. Just being able to learn how nature is designing molecules, being able to sort through hundreds and thousands of times more data with algorithms, increases the chances that we design the right drug candidate not just discover the right drug candidate. We're actually designing drugs now early. And that just limits chances for failure in later stage trials after significant time and significant capital was already invested into the process. That being said, I think, you know, we're all kind of in this spot where, well, theoretically, it makes sense, this whole process of applying AI to drug design. 
we haven't actually seen an approved drug that was designed with AI yet. So jury's still out, but it seems like this year we are starting to get some assets into later stage trials and we'll see some pivotal clinical readouts that will have a shot at validating this industry, especially given that there are quite a few assets in the works right now. Hmm. Are there any specific companies you think will achieve this first? So there's quite a few companies in the space in general. This was a pivotal year in terms of how much funding went into AI drug discovery. You've probably seen some mammoth rounds being announced lately with these different AI drug discovery companies. In terms of what companies will have the first asset on the clinic, um, Verge Genomics, which is working on neurodegenerative diseases, and Exientia, which I can never pronounce, um, are getting pretty close. They're getting pretty close to the point where some of their assets are far enough along that they might even hit the clinic towards the end of the year. So we'll have to keep an eye on them and keep our fingers crossed. Well, moving on, uh, a recent book that I read uh, was, and I absolutely love this book, uh, John Doerr's um, book, uh, Speed and Scale. But after reading that, it was very clear that we can no longer wait to become sustainable. Like we needed action yesterday. And I think people are starting to get that message. This past year, climate tech investing reached a record-setting $32 billion, which is over five times greater than it was in 2016. That's awesome. Plug for the book, Speed and Scale. We'll drop it in the show notes. It is a really great introduction to anyone interested in climate tech. So far, we've done a decent job in electrifying transportation and decarbonizing the grid, right? With batteries, you know, I mean, with EVs, Tesla, um, and nuclear energy, solar panels, uh, and all kinds of other things. But we are just starting to really put an emphasis on carbon removal. To keep the world from heating past two degrees Celsius, we need to remove 10 billion tons tons of emissions every year and direct air capture technology has only sequestered about 2,500 tons of carbon worldwide. That's a small portion of 1% of our goal. So as capital continues to flood the climate tech markets, I expect to see a boom in carbon removal startups in areas such as reforestation, improving forest management, more direct air capture, biomass energy with carbon capture and storage, which people call BEX. Um, this is actually one of the more popular approaches and it's quickly gaining a lot of popularity. Also, some other ones are like materials manufacturing, sequestering carbon from things like chemicals, cement, and wood, and then soil carbon sequestration removing carbon from the atmosphere by storing it in a soil carbon pool and many more. Do you think that we'll need a combination of every single one of these areas or is there a particular category that you mentioned that you think will be, you know, sufficient to help us achieve those carbon removal goals and and be the the carbon removal process? I to me um the things that I think are going to be prevalent are like I referred earlier to, uh, biomass energy with carbon capture and storage. Um, it's still pretty early in its infancy, and a lot of a lot of the companies or organizations working on this haven't quite gotten it down. But that leaves momentous opportunity to figure it out right now. Um, 
Another thing is data analytics in force management. Uh, I've seen quite a bit of startups that are working towards that area. And then materials manufacturing, right? Um, removing carbon from things like chemicals. All right. So this next one, new funding models, galvanized biotech innovation, is something that I'm particularly excited about, especially having spent part of the holidays diving into this rabbit hole that is Web3, like everyone else. Um, I think it's really interesting to think about what decentralization and this whole movement, for lack of a better term, can bring to biotech, which traditionally has been characterized by university-centric, government-funded research that, you know, while has fueled some of the best discoveries, it's frustratingly lacked a focus on commercialization. One of the good things to come out of the pandemic is that we're starting to realize that we don't have to do science exclusively in academia. There are a few funding models out there emerging, like focused research organizations, billionaire-funded grants, like the FAST grants for COVID research. Um, there are some new DAOs coming out, private research companies, really so many more options that have only begun to emerge in the last few years that are starting to make it possible for us to do really hard science that might be very capital-intensive and take several years to produce research from in a non-academia setting. So I've been super excited about that. Okay, so it looks like things are going well in this space. Um, can you give us an example of one of those types of funding models or why you're excited about it? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'll pick on focused research organizations or FROs. That's probably the most direct organization created to sidestep the you know organizational inefficiencies of academia and industry that we've kind of been battling with. They create specific groups that, you know, solve a specific scientific or technological challenge with the goal of producing something tangible. So there is that emphasis on commercialization. And in many ways, FROs are operated like a moonshot startup, very, you know, characteristic deep tech. E11 Bio, you might have seen this kind of floating around, is a great example of an FRO. They're basically focused on mapping brain organization to accelerate neuroscience for both brain consumer interface applications and also just traditional neuropharmaceuticals. So just, you know, your run of the mill drug discovery. And the cool part that is super exciting about these FROs is that the research is open source. And that's really catalyzing biotech in a direction to where shared research and more actionable discoveries where you have a more collaborative ecosystem being created. And I think this is where DAOs and Web3 can come in to make sure that the monetary incentives are aligned, the IP protection is granted accordingly. Um, some of the rules with DAO governance really make sense here. And we've seen this with VitaDAO, which is more focused on longevity, and also now with LabDAO. I think it's important to note that there's still a lot of infrastructure to figure out here, but it's pretty interesting that we're starting to see this shift in science that prioritizes commercialization and the founder-scientist archetype that we're starting to love so much. Well, you know, Ami, I've been having a lot of conversations lately around Web3 and new funding models, and I think it's actually really cool because earlier my assumptions on Web3, you know, I thought we were very far away from this ecosystem or community or whatever you want to call it, um, really providing value in a meaningful way, such as deep tech does. But, you know, when I started hearing about these DAOs that are creating these new funding models to support 
innovation and like meaningful innovation. I think that's just awesome. So switching gears from that. Now, this is a trend I'm really excited about. Nuclear energy. I mean, after decades of being so misunderstood, we are finally experiencing an atomic renaissance. I mean, a restoration of faith in what I believe is our best chance of meeting the enormous requirements of sustainability um, that have been pushed out by the UN. You and me both. What do you think we'll see in terms of new designs or new technologies to push this nuclear renaissance forward? Okay, so new fission reactor designs will entail small modular reactors, um, SMRs. There is a subset of them called micro-reactors. Micro-reactors are about 100 to 1,000 times smaller than conventional nuclear reactors, while SMRs range from 20 to 300 megawatts. And this year, actually, the first SMR is scheduled to go online um, in China. Now, on to fusion. Harnessing the power of the sun and stars has been kind of like a dream, you know. Scientists consider it probably one of the hardest technical challenges ever. And it has been considered to be 20 to 30 years away for a while. But I think it finally isn't. You know, the the key to unlocking this near limitless energy source is by achieving a fusion energy gain. And I think that is right around the corner. Um, Some people have even said that some companies have already achieved this, but just haven't Um, pushed it out to the public. Commercialization for this industry will be a whole other battle. But still, I remain optimistic because uh, this last year, there's been an abundance of capital that has flooded this market and 35 fusion-focused startups that raised nearly $3.8 billion. So yeah, I think we will see a lot more developments in space um, this next year. That's great to hear. Sometimes I wonder if before nuclear energy fully integrates itself within society if it's going to undergo a rebrand of sorts and be called something different. Switching gears a little, uh, let's talk about cultured meats. So cultured meats, or cellular-based agriculture, has been promised for quite a while now. I feel like we're all at the point where we're no longer bewildered by the prospect of growing meat in the lab, and instead we just kind of are ready to try it. Um, And 2022 might be our year for that. It might be the year that the first cultured meat products hit the shelves. If you think about it, R&D is no longer the limiting factor to some of these companies getting off the ground. I mean, Mission Barnes has been running successful taste tests for quite some time now. And the focus, and this ties in well with our first prediction for biomanufacturing, is turning towards building manufacturing sites, scaling the process, and making sure that these costs of production are sustainable, which Quite frankly, we have a lot of work to do still to get to the cost of production down because things like growth factors, which is a fundamental input for growing cultured meats, is still incredibly costly to obtain. And there is work being done in that sector as well. Um, That being said, I doubt we'll see the widespread availability of cultured meats at the grocery store anytime soon. It might take five to 10 years for that. But we're definitely on track to seeing some of these products hit select shelves and get their first taste, if you will, of public validation. And I can't wait to see how that all pans out and just see how some of these cultured meat products, which are really the promise of the future for food supply, hold up to some of the standard, you know, meatpacking industry products that we've seen until now. 
wow, that's kind of exciting and also made me a little bit hungry. <laughs> but um, I guess from here, uh, let's go Ad Astra, right? Um, next up is Spaceflight. First and foremost, I got to thank Elon Musk and the rest of SpaceX for completely propelling this economy. I mean, without SpaceX sinking launch costs, being a spacefaring species would still be an incredibly insane idea. But now it's not. It's starting to look like something that could be a reality. Um, in 2021, there were over 130 successful space launches. And those launches propagated about 1,700 objects into space. If you compare this to 2019, there were only about 586 objects that were launched. And that is about a 290% increase in objects going orbital. I think spaceflight is still far away from being democratized. Um, there's a lot of things that need to be done across the value chain to make the economics more bearable, to make them work so other people can potentially own their own satellite one day. So we need more versatility um, in this area. A pivotal next step will be the emergence of in-space transportation, which will also unlock management systems for space debris in 2022. The key innovation here is orbital transfer vehicles. Some call them space tugs, but I like to think of them as Uber for space. Um, ODBs are becoming prevalent because we need a viable way to address all this disjointed transportation in space and mitigate things such as the Kessler syndrome. I think OTBs are going to be the last mile delivery of payloads to specific orbits um, that will lessen the need for more propellant engines. And with the constellation of OTBs, the cost of launch will significantly reduce, which also increases the cadence of reusable launch vehicle companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin. I think 2022 and beyond, it will be at Astro. Can't wait. Okay, so that wraps up our main predictions for the year, but there are so many exciting things happening in deep tech that we just couldn't get to everything. Andrew, are there any honorable mentions that you want to call out before we wrap up? Yeah, so an honorable mention that, I mean, is pretty important um, is going back on to my point about semiconductors, right? Um, I think we need to be on the lookout for the next generation of computing. Uh, I like to put it this way. Moore's law has hit Moore's wall. What do I mean by this? So our appetite for training AI models is increasing, which means energy consumption increases greatly. It's gotten so bad that energy consumption can pose serious environmental issues which isn't practical as we transition into a sustainable world. And packing more transistors onto a chip isn't a viable solution either. There are physical constraints, right? There's issues such as quantum tunneling where electrons leap through barriers and cause current leakage. So this realization is lighting a fire under chip companies and startups to find the next paradigm of computing. Recently, that's been quantum computing, uh, which has gotten a lot of popularity. But I think it will be joined with other things that are not as spoken of as much, um, but neuromorphic systems um, and biological processors. 
I'd add proteomics to the watch list as well. I think DNA and RNA have both had their respective golden hours, um, and that's you know still continuing. But if we keep going down this central dogma of biology, proteins are what's naturally next. The field of proteomics has made some really incredible advancements with companies like Icon Therapeutics, Nomic, previously known as NPLEX, and Glyphic, all doing some really interesting work spanning uh, protein characterization, protein sequencing, um, scanning electron microscopy, different ways of looking at proteins. I think what's really cool about proteomics is that you can take all this data generated from various different platforms and analyze really small scale protein interactions. And then you feed that data back in to inform multiple aspects of biology, whether it's drug design or diagnostics or even some point of care devices. So proteomics is definitely something that I'll be keeping my eyes on. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, well, to go off from there, um, I'm really excited about all the developments that have been going on. And even though I don't, you know, some of these trends may not come to fruition within the time that we predicted, but I think it's awesome that through all these existential risks, you know, such as COVID and climate change, we are still building the future. Totally. And even though we're calling this our predictions episode, I like to think of predictions as more of a timestamp on what feels important right now than a game. But that being said, we'll definitely have to check back in and see how many we did get right. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Near Frontier. A full transcript and links to external content mentioned are available in the show notes and at nearfrontier.com where you can also find other episodes of the show. To leave feedback or suggest future guests, you can find us on Twitter at CantosBC.